0: Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And joining me as a special co-host for today's show is Forrester's Head of Research, Kerry Johnson. Welcome,
1: Carrie. Thank you, Victor.
0: Also with us are two of our analysts, J.P. Gounder and Sam Stern. What we're going to talk about today, gentlemen, is the interface between man and machine and how that's going to work going forward. So welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So Let's start with the machine part of this, JP, which is we're in a place in time where RPA is becoming normal and we're having more adult conversations about the role of robotics and about how AI will influence your organization. So, In your mind, what does the next couple of years look like as it relates to robotics, AI,
2: and other things that, candidly, right now we're a little bit frightened about? Yeah. Well, we're still frightened about them in many cases, right? I mean, we're, we're frightened for our jobs. We're frightened for our skill sets. Is my organization moving quickly enough? Do we, uh, are we going to get swept away by this revolution? And uh, much of the answer to that is, this is very hard to do. And the revolution will not happen overnight. Um, Right now, what we're talking about is a whole- I think the fear factors when you say words like revolution. Right. But the revolution could be 20 years, right? I mean, it is not something that, this is not like other technology movements. It's going to take a very long time in its purest form to come to fruition. And we're also talking about disparate technologies here, right? We're talking about physical robotics, which are a bit uh, exotic still. We're talking about RPA, which is much more common right now. And our colleague Craig LeClaire is doing amazing research on robotic process automation. And for those who are not that familiar with it, this is where you can provision a software bot, and that bot can do highly deterministic tasks. And it's very good at doing things that it knows how to do. I mean, it does them very quickly. Um, and therefore it takes certain tasks off the plates of humans who were previously doing very manual tasks. This is almost like digitally outsourcing. Yes, and, and in fact that is the perfect way to think about it because um, it's starting to undo the BPO revolution, right? So traditional overseas outsourcing, we were saying, well, it'll be labor arbitrage. And now what we're saying is labor arbitrage is no longer the issue. We can create performance gains that ultimately serve our customers better Uh, at, at huge scale.
0: We're looking at a place where AI and robotics are not going to be something that works for humans necessarily, but with them. Very different structures. I want to stop there because this is sort of the heart and soul of this podcast, which is, and this goes now to you, Sam. We sit here today where EX or employee experience is becoming a really hot item because people understand that empowering employees and delivering them experiences has a palpable impact. And we're also at a point in time where culture continues to be a strategic priority, hard as it is, it is nonetheless Mm, a strategic priority. How do we wrestle to the ground that at the same moment that we're talking about EX and culture, very human topics, we're having a conversation about robotics? How how does that square?
3: Yeah, well, it doesn't have to square. And I I think you can square it, though, to to maybe torture that word square here. the, what, what I'm getting at is so much of what improves an employee experience is removing away mundane, repetitive tasks and work that, as JP was just very articulately describing, are very appropriate in these early stages, especially for RPA. So it's the type of things that I don't want to do anymore uh, as an employee that are the least of what value I add to our environment, are the things that keep me too busy to go above and beyond on behalf of my colleagues, on behalf of customers and that um, are the reasons why so many employees in our workforce are uh, sleepless on Sunday night, dreading going back to work on Monday. So I think you can absolutely have these um, dovetail together where the robots are taking away the things we don't want to do, at least for now. Uh, I can I can imagine more and more conflict between higher order tasks as we get deeper into this revolution that JP was just talking about. But in the early stages, so much of what you'd be offloading from me are things I'm thankful to have off my plate and that then make me feel like I now have time and attention back in my day to focus on these higher order tasks.
1: As you were talking, I was thinking about the old what people say they want versus what they really want. Yes. And I can't help but think people say they want to get rid of those mun- mundane tasks, but that there's comfort. In some of those mundane tasks as well, in that they know how to do them. They feel good. They check them off of a list. And one of the issues here is if you automate that task, you take away some of what they know that they're good at. Yeah. So I do worry about the trust that will then come along with this and people's actual willingness to let go of things.
3: Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, I think there's, um you know, I, I look at it another way in terms of what people say they want, what they actually want, which is, you know, almost always people say, oh, yeah, you know, just give me more money and I'll be happy at work when that's we know actually that's not what motivates people. Or, you know, oh, I, you know, I don't want to have to do more work when actually working hard at something, struggling through something and, and coming out the other side is the most fulfilling thing, right? That, that it actually felt like it was a challenge and, and you met it. Um, I do think there are still going to be plenty of repeatable tasks that humans perform that are humans providing humanness in an interaction with a colleague or with a customer that will still feel like things that they know they're good at, are confident they can deliver, can almost do on autopilot, to your point, um, but are not so little value adding from a human standpoint of a human delivering it that that we want to automate them or push them over to the machines just yet. So I think there's a way, to your point, to have a set of tasks that I can still feel like I'm the one, I'm very good at these, so I don't have to worry about this part of my day. I get to crank through these and be really good at them, but also I don't worry that they're necessarily going straight over to the uh, the robots as soon as they get good at them because there's a human element to this that makes it better for me as a human to, to do it.
0: Yeah, and I see this as a two-step. The first one is discomfort. I'm uncomfortable with change. The other one is when you said the higher order, when I move from the the technology works for me on my behalf to make it more efficient and allow me to do higher order things, and now the robots are doing higher order things too. Yeah. Now they're competing with me they're displacing me there's a set of words that are really uncomfortable and that brings us to what sort of is the the expected future of robotics which is to take a place in the organization that is not strictly deterministic well-defined well-structured tasks but more indeterministic or how is that going to wash in terms of going first to you sam on the ex in culture side how are we preparing humans for a place that may be coming sooner than most people think
3: yeah. Well, I, I think you do, um, you know, you brought up the idea of sort of loss aversion or the sort of fear of the change that's happening. And and I think, Carrie, you, you your earlier question raised a really good point that you want humans to feel like there's still some core of what they do that they are, they're going to get to hold on to, not forever. We're not, you know, this isn't a jobs guarantee program, but that you feel, you can feel comfortable and confident that what you bring to the table will still be valued. Um, and so, I think there has to be some kind of conversation around that, you know, making explicit what value you are adding as a human, which is maybe not something, JP, I'd love to hear your point of view on this, but it's not something we've necessarily had to do before, right? This is what you as a human provide versus what our robots that are doing more and more of this um, you know, very specific defined task uh, work are starting to do. How do we help you understand where you still add value and where you're going to still have a part to play?
2: Let me uh, give three quick vignettes of examples of how I've come across this in my research. So to Carrie's point, um, it could change the way that we hire. I had uh, an IT leader say, you know, we used to hire people to do these manual jobs, and that was kind of what they really liked to do. I mean, they found it kind of zen. I do this sort of mundane Mm -hmm. task, and I do it repetitively, but well, that person now needs to have what I've labeled constructive ambition, because they're going to have to become a bot master. They're going to have to grow into a role where they're still handling exceptions. Um, They're still handling the 20 to 30% of things that the bot doesn't identify and do well. But they also have to manage the bots and make the bots better and teach the bots. And by the way, this is true whether you're talking about RPA, AI, or even physical robotics. All three of those work that way. So my first vignette here is about uh, the evolution of that person.
0: And on vignette one, I think it would be really cool to have a job called bot master.
2: Yes, and that is a a real job that people are starting to... That's a cool
0: title. But not for
2: everyone, right? Not everyone has the disposition. Vignette number two relates to some things that that Sam was talking about. Um, I featured an example of a company that was deploying chatbots for both internal employees and for customers. And they realized they had a big problem. They couldn't make the chatbot sound very um, human. Right? So they went to the local MFA program, the Master of Fine Arts program, and they hired professional novelists to come in and write the dialogue for the chatbot. So this is a great example of the humanness that Sam was talking about where there are certain kinds of skill sets that will always be valuable that machines will not be capable of doing. My third vignette um, is basically about uh, sort of the, the change management piece and, and the culture piece and what we call RQ, which is the robotics quotient. We've published some some research about this. And it requires um, that leaders, that they training and development, that people invest in helping people with this revolution.
0: Yeah, I want to dig at that a little bit because, you know, there was IQ, and I won't comment on my score. Uh, mm-hmm. Neither hearing, will I. Yeah, yeah. There was EQ, which I certainly won't comment on that score, and now RQ. And it's a very different measure of a human's comfort and ability to adapt to, interface with, guide, and be guided by robots. How do we even understand what RQ is? Because it's it's easier to dissect IQ and EQ because we sort of deal with that every day, but RQ appears to be kind of a foreign thing.
2: Yeah, so we think of RQ as the ability of individuals and organizations to learn, adapt to, trust, collaborate with, and derive business results from working side-by-side with robots, right? So it's this, there's all these five things. I I have to learn how to work with these new entities. I have to learn to trust them. I have to learn um, how to adapt my business process. So people, leaders, and organizational structures all have to grow and evolve to accommodate this new worker, the digital worker. As you see this, Sam,
0: how does culture consider this because culture to date has been primarily not completely but primarily a human question of getting people's belief systems and habits sort of in line to where you want to go and now you're adding this component about how robots are which are probably easily easy designed in terms of culture but they, they operate in a different context
3: yeah so the culture piece um the the role that uh bots and machines are playing i think there's there's two parts to this one is um Depending on where your culture is today, the degree to which there's trust among employees for management for decision makers will, uh, I think, guide how much they're willing to let that play out and trust that there will you know, they'll people will find the right role for humans in the new uh, the new sort of paradigm, or that that's a, another threat to their job and it's another excuse to get rid of people, um, and that. That To me, a lot of that is driven by the existing trust within the culture. The other thing I would say, though, is, and I was alluding to this before, employees want to feel like if you're asking them to do more, uh, and I, you know, I'm thinking about on behalf of customers, or to be able to uh, provide more discretionary effort to support colleagues when, when what's required is a complex answer to a customer question or on a customer project, um, I want to feel like you've given me some time back some attention back, some cognitive load back in my day. And that's where, position in the right way, with that sense of trust in the culture, if I see some of these things getting automated and, and turned over to the machines, then I feel like you've actually given me time back to focus on these higher order, higher value things. And I feel like the time equation, the cognitive equation makes sense for me, rather than it's just more work piled on top of what you already asked me to do.
0: So when you take tough guidance from somebody, you may say, I trust them because they're salt of the earth. I trust their fiber of being. I trust their positive intent. And robots have none of those things. <laughs> so what, what is going to be ascribed to a algorithm, a probabilistic sort of thought process or whatever it might be that sort of says, I believe that robot came to the right conclusion because they considered the right data, they were designed the right way, and I'm being fairly treated and maybe in a dispassionate way, but fairly
2: treated nonetheless because I don't, I can't fall back to salt of the earth. So when it comes to this trust of probabilistic entities, human cognition is not optimized for that. We are used to deterministic systems. We're very much trained to that, and we expect these kind of binaries. Um, So what we call this now is Toronto moments, and let me give you the background on that. Um, When IBM Watson was on Jeopardy, very famously. Mm -hmm. It missed a very important final Jeopardy answer. I mean, it still killed the human competition, right? But the final Jeopardy category was U.S. cities. And the answer to the question was Toronto. Now, we would say, actually, people gasped in the audience. People were shocked that IBM Watson could do this. When we peel back the onion, it turns out that Watson was only about 30% sure of its answer. It simply didn't have the right data to answer this question. And it turns out there are a few uh, cities in the United States called Toronto as well, tiny little towns. So there were reasons why Watson made this assessment, but it had a very low probability ascribed to it. So what this tells us is that human beings need to leverage judgment when they use Uh, robotic systems. In other words, sometimes those robotic systems will have to report out what their probability is. Um, In other cases, you have to be able to leverage um, a mental model of how you think the machine is supposed to work and question it when you think this is a Toronto moment.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm going to the, there's three ways to think of the relationship. One is, if I task a machine to do something, they're working against my parameters, my objectives. They either do it or don't. That's sort of common on how savvy I am with tech. If they're alongside me as a teammate, it might be more, do I trust that they're getting the work done in the same way that, to your point, Sam, offload some key pieces to me. I got to think differently. I get to free up some space. When I'm taking guidance from them, there's typically a feeling of going back to salty earth or I did, I was, I'll use your 30% number. You are at 30%, but you used your experience and instincts of which again, I'm going to have to trust that the robot has some thing that is a, a form of instinct and experience. But they may not. It's really an accumulation of either machine learning or design at that point in time. How, how does RQ inform the human to interface at that point in time?
2: The human has to, number one, have a mental model of how that machine works. Um, and this will, things like transparency versus opacity come into play. If it's transparent how the machine is actually making some of these decisions, that helps the human being to understand whether he or she should trust the machine. Secondly, you design the system in a way where humans are alerted when there's a high uh, degree of uncertainty around the answer that's being given. And thirdly, it, this is an iterative process. It's not, you know, so far we've been talking about it as though it was, there's this one key decision. Really, this is something that's happening over and over. And you use machine learning and human learning to inform what you, uh, how you change the process.
1: It seems that the tasks you're describing that can be automated with RPA are discrete, and people can learn to trust a machine over time. But if you go to the other extreme... Humans' response to the accidents that have occurred with autonomous vehicles, to me, highlight how quick they are to distrust machines and that they're willing to and ready to pounce when machines make bad decisions.
2: And this is true. Uh, This is a, a feature of human cognition. And there are three things that matter in this situation. One is how transparent is what's going on. And for autonomous vehicles right now, it's a black box. It's sort of what Elon Musk says about Tesla's performance and, and, you know, so people aren't inclined to believe that. And they can't really audit the results of what happened. The second thing is going to be around, um, you know, how do I think about this technology uh, in its probabilistic versus deterministic uh, fashion? With with driverless cars, it's a series of probabilities that are being created. So that compounds the distrust because you know it's all probabilistic. The third is what we call human effect. What impact does this have on human systems? And this is where if someone, God forbid, gets hit you know, by a driverless car and dies, you're going to see a huge backlash. But I will point this out. For many, many years, for 30 years or more, we have been landing airplanes automatically. Uh, the degree to which an airplane is actually driven autonomously using software is, would be alarming to people who fly often if they knew.
3: JP, I w- I've been thinking about um, when, you, when you talked about RQ, and how humans relate to machines and and work with them and think about them. And I think building on on Carrie's question for you, we've seen those videos of of children shouting at Alexa, right, on YouTube. And I have some worry that the way we treat machines will bleed over into how we start to treat humans, especially as the machines get more human-like in their interactions with us. Have you thought about that?
2: I have. I mean, viscerally, um, I I have two little four-year-old nephews who are... Very much into their Alexa. And their mother is uh, sort of a proper Southern lady, and she requires that they ask please and thank you (laughs) of Alexa because she's very concerned about exactly what you're talking about. In our RQ model, the people component that we built is built directly off of EQ. So there are these core things that we need as workers um, and as people to be successful and healthy. We need to um, be able to. Uh, understand emotions in ourselves and other people. We need to be able to perceive when emotional interactions are going well or poorly. We need to be able to facilitate emotional reactions and we need to be able to manage our own emotions. Those same things are true with a different twist for humans who are going to work side by side with robots. I
0: mean, this, this forces a, a hyper maturity of the interface because the interface can't be a keyboard in that context. It has to be a natural interface because I have to be able to say things the way I want to say them in my voice, hear words that make sense to me, hear tone with some physical communications goes along with it to get a sense of like what actually is happening in this communication with, with a computer, myself to it and it back to me.
2: Is is that part of the RQ, which is how do these semantic interfaces, interfaces, how do they exist, how do they form? Yeah, and you know we're not there, right? I mean, on all of those things that you've just mentioned, we're at the early phase, right, of developing them. Uh, that's why we we look at this in terms of how does the particular technology that you're implementing today. What is it? What do humans bring in terms of trust to that experience? Because right now it's not easy. If you have an RPA system, you need a lot of technologists uh, involved in that. There is no sort of easy, despite what vendors will tell you, there's no easy universal natural language user interface right now.
0: And Sam, in the construction of EX, what role do you imagine that competency playing in actually designing the robots? I mean, so that there is inherently culture in the design yeah. the intended culture of the firm so that it is much more sort of pre-assimilated not using the old borg language but pre-assimilated <laughs> into the the human fabric that is the organization
3: yeah well no i'm i'm actually encouraged by jp's answer about you know building rq off of the eq and the needs of humans to have some sort of human response right in in the interfaces in the the robots they interact with so to me um, as more and more of my interactions as an employee are coming with non-humans, uh, as we collaborate in a way to deliver a customer experience, to, to deliver our products and services, it should be a design principle in the creation of those interfaces of those robots that they be able to, you know, interact with me in as human a way as possible. Um, however, I mean, JP, and this may be a question for you is, uh, you know, it seems to me like then we'd be getting into this uncanny valley territory for a while. As they seem human, but not quite. And then that's a little creepy, or it jolts you out of, you know, jolts you back into consciousness that
2: they aren't human, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we'd be lucky to be in the Uncanny Valley today. <laughs> right, um, right. I mean, I think people need to know that there is a lot of hype here. You know, when you um, even when you think of the best conversational interfaces that you use, there are a lot of limits. And yeah. so we're in a moment where vendors are overpromising, and I think there's a big risk to that. And I think the design principles you're laying out, we need to reinforce with everyone because um, we're not there yet.
1: We're not there on the human conversational interfaces, but we are with RPA, arguably, and tasks,
2: correct? I would say with RPA and tasks, there is effectiveness, there is ROI, there is um, even the ability to reinvent parts of your business. None of that is human, right?
1: What struck me when Sam was talking about change management in an organization that employees needed to be able to trust, this wasn't a reason for employers to do, say, more layoffs. But it's the companies that have been doing a lot of layoffs that are in the most need of, say, RPA to automate old tasks and move forward and be creative and thrive. Yet they have probably very low employee
2: trust coming in. You know, we've been looking at that in terms of human effect. Like what is the human impact of any given technology implementation that you make? That's something that you need to take very seriously because you will have to make other kinds of investments. That said, I've talked to many organizations who, yes, they had some level of downsizing. They they went with RPA, let's say. In the ideal case, when they've done the things that Sam is talking about, the people who were left behind were much happier with their jobs because, generally speaking, um, there are these tasks that people simply don't want to do. I'll give you a great example and both of you are hiring managers, you know, when you when you hire a new employee, there's all this employee onboarding. You have to email somebody to get them a laptop and a license for software and an office and a phone and all of these things. Um, and the reality is that's usually a very manual process in most organizations. And no one enjoys doing that. With one RPA bot, you can do all of that instantly. And can I just add to
3: that? I mean, I think what you, you raised a really important point there, that it's not as if we are in some golden age of great jobs with high engagement, um, you know, every year when Gallup's employee engagement index comes out, it's a chance for everyone to hem and haw about how low engagement rates are and how so many employees are disengaged, and the numbers never change; they're static year over year. So, exactly to JP's point, you um, know, <laughs> we have an opportunity. We have a huge gap between, um, you know, the vast majority of employees not being fulfilled by or loving their job. So there is an opportunity here.
0: So let's talk about time for a second. So we're we're talking about going into the uncanny valley then coming out the other side. What is the timing that you're envisioning here, JP? Are you talking two years, five years, seven years?
2: What is the timing? It rather depends on the technology, Um, I mean. So five years is a credible starting point to some of these dynamics. Yeah, you know, a lot of organizations We have a bell curve of organizations out there. You may see leading edge organizations who are doing some really magical things with AI and robotics um, in the near term, but that's not gonna be very commonplace. uh, And most companies in the world are gonna struggle to have the infrastructure in place, the data, the systems to to make this work. So what we're we're positing with the RQ thesis is there are investments that you can prioritize to kind of move yourself to the next phase and then you'll be ready. But uh, for RPA, we're here today. I mean, again, Craig LeClaire, our colleague, is you know talking every day to help people do this. But that is a very discrete deterministic task orientation. For the broader kind of, I'm working with an AI system, you're looking at 10 years, 20 years. I mean, it's going to be a long journey.
0: But on those in the front end of this thing, I mean, in a prior uh, podcast or prior discussion, Sam, you know, some of the more arduous, complex culture tasks may take up to five years. I mean, there's, there's a yeah. large window of time to bring the organization from where it is to where it wants to go. That's a near window, JP. I mean, I guess that's where these things sort of collide or, or, or dance with each other, which is the design of culture now has to consider that a very likely scenario is that there's a larger play here for going back to the cut I made earlier, which is not that technology is working for me, but now working with me. Yeah. So that has to be considered because the windows are now on top of each other.
3: Yes. Well, so let me offer the rosiest possible timeline scenario here, right? So culture change takes a long time, at least 5 years. RPAs are happening in the near term, right? It's happening now. We are automating mundane tasks. We are maybe building up an equation in that early phase of that of the automation where I am trusting that what you're automating is the stuff I didn't really want to do. You're making a better version of my job. That builds up the trust factor as we change the culture of the organization so that on the back end of that, as I have to now work with much more than work, than direct the work of the robots, the trust factor has been built up because you have elevated my job to a level where I actually feel like I'm really contributing to meaning and purpose and and value delivery in the organization in a higher way.
0: It seems to me that one of the pieces of equation is that the same workers that are getting increasingly comfortable have to be part of the design of of these robotics because they live the job. And one way to trust the outcome is to design the outcome. Do you envision that Because it used to be that technology designed it sort of over there, and they place it here in front of the other person. Do you envision that the design equation here will
2: change and that the people who are affected by it will become part of the whole process? This is exactly what we're finding, and it's fascinating because... Um, There was a lot of skepticism about this. But let's say you were um, in the finance department and your job was financial reconciliation. You're looking at ledgers and incoming and outgoing outflows. Very manual process for most organizations. Now you can have an RPA bot that can do it. But guess what? The bot can only do 60 to 70% accuracy. And so you have this long trail of exceptions where the employee still has to do those things. They have to handle the exceptions. And then they have to teach the bot. And as they do that, they become a bot master. They manage the bot. What's that title again. I love that. I isn't it a great one? And some some literal organizations use that title. But in what we've learned is you can't just sort of bring in some egghead outsiders and have them design a process that is divorced from the reality of your organization. You need to bring the people who are doing that job into the design. And then, as I said before, it's not before and after. It's iterative. And so that person is key to improving the process.
1: It also sounds like some of the processes you've described, I'm not sure that everyone would immediately recognize it as a bot.
2: Mm-hmm. It may just be
1: an automated process. It seems that the companies need to make sure people are aware that they are, in fact, working with an automated process to help build the trust that, Sam, you were talking about yeah. for the future.
3: Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And, but, JP, I mean, again, to me, you've painted a scenario where I'm, you know, to your question, Victor, I'm in control of the process of handing over more of the work to the bot. I'm training it. I'm in control. I'm, you know, I, do I, maybe I don't want to be a bot master, but I've become one, right, in, yeah. in this iterative process as we, as we push this out. And to your point, I'm not being, asked, I'm not being called into a one-day workshop to design the interactions with bots. We're, we're doing this in an ongoing relationship, and I'm actually building a relationship with this bot. Or this automated process, if we're not calling it a bot, right?
0: This conversation is being had at a time where the economies are growing and jobs are essentially aplenty. But there's increasing talk of whether because of trade wars or other dynamics of the business cycle, that we're heading into a place where we're heading towards recession, where jobs are going to become much more precious. Does this dynamic change? Is it swayed by economic swings like this? Or is this sort of, it's just going to go regardless?
2: Oh, I mean, it will go regardless, but it would be uh, turbocharged. If there is some sort of recession, you would start to find that there will be too much work to go around and that filling in particularly with RPA bots would be a viable solution for everything from scheduling meetings to, you know, doing really hardcore work processes. That's what I would say. So
0: turbocharged in terms of speed, does it also create, in the concept of trust, a natural resentment to the machines because they actually saw that happen to me? This was mm. a, a palpable moment where I lost my job to the machine kind of thing.
3: Right. It's not an IT worker training someone from another country to, to take their job. It's an IT worker That's training right. the bot to take their job. Right. It right. begins
0: the narrative. It, you The folklore begins. Does that injure trust? Does that defer sort of the larger story you guys were telling even though RPA will have a you know palpable effect of sort of creating efficiency in the downturn.
2: Yeah, I mean, look at what happened in the eight, uh, 1800s, right? With the mm-hmm. Luddites. I yeah. mean, we still use the word Luddite for a reason. And there was economic recession, combined with automation, uh, used in agriculture. This led to literal riots. So imagine we have another jobless recovery, but this time it's because bots have taken over so many jobs. That could be problematic.
0: So the purpose of this podcast was to explore the very changing relationship between man and machine. I mean, one could argue that we're heading towards a collision. One could argue we're heading towards a moment of synchronicity. So what does it mean to leaders designing culture or designing their business in a future of which is a very different relationship between man and machine? So I'll start with you, JP.
2: Well, I mean, it means that we have to start investing in some of the prerequisites that are going to make this successful. Um, That is to say, we need to rethink... Uh, learning and development for our workers. And I'm not talking about the technology workers. I'm talking about the workers who are doing those manual jobs today. They need new skills, new uh, sets of opportunities. They need career paths. We need leaders to start thinking a little bit more algorithmically and have a plan. How are algorithmic systems going to be a part of my workforce in the future? And we have to have things like budgets, boring things like budgets, hmm. for uh, training and things like that. So organizational change that makes sure that those commitments are met.
3: Yeah, and I I would say that we spent, you know, the, the vast majority of the 20th century, ever since the, the assembly line came along, uh, taking the humanness out of jobs that we asked humans to do. Uh, and so to me, there's a real opportunity as we move forward with greater automation uh, to bring humans back to doing the things that humans are best at doing, to, you know, um, reading and reacting to emotions from other humans, to bringing a personalized touch, to experiences, to interaction, something that is even more prevalent as more and more of the economy is a service-based economy. So I'm really encouraged by this because I think it it allows there to be, while I completely agree with JP that we need to work better with the machines that we're working better with, there can be clearer distinctions between what are human-optimized tasks and what are machine-optimized tasks, and humans can focus more on doing things that they're best
0: at doing. A great conversation, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.